Galatians 2, 11 through 14 reads as follows. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, but when they came he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Amen. Well, we have come to the second half of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And what we have in Galatians here in this text this morning is perhaps one of the more well-known confrontations that we have in all of Scripture. And there, there are a couple of reasons why this is such a significant confrontation. And, and the first reason is because of those who are involved in this confrontation. In this confrontation, there is, there is Paul, the once persecutor of the church who was arrested by God on the road to Damascus uh, and called to be an apostle and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So there's Paul. And you have, then you have Peter, whom many would consider the, the lead apostle because of the way that the scriptures speak of Peter and the way he is portrayed in scripture. He is the one who, who Jesus told and commanded to, to feed his, his sheep. And he is the one, the one that delivered the, the first sermon at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, there Peter stood up boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have Paul and you have Peter. So it is significant, this confrontation is significant because of the parties involved. But it's also significant because of what is at stake. As we, as we take a look and study these few verses this morning, I'd like us first to look at the confrontation. We're going we're to look at the confrontation, what this confrontation was all about, and then we're going to uh, look at the reason for this confrontation. And at the end, we, we hope to ground us once again in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's look, at the, let's look at the confrontation. Paul, Paul uh, is continuing to express his frustration and his disappointment with the Galatian churches. He is, he is disappointed. He is, he is astonished that they have so quickly deserted the gospel. He is, as we have named our series, building a a case for a gospel of radical grace, which is in stark opposition to the message that the Judaizers are proclaiming. 
They are proclaiming a gospel of legalism and slavery. So Paul's next piece of evidence he is going to present to the Galatian churches is this confrontation that he has with Peter when they were in Antioch. Paul get, begins to tell them what happens. He, he tells them that he and Peter were in Antioch visiting with the Gentile Christians there. They were, they were teaching them and, and preaching them and, and exhorting to them about the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and they were having a, a grand old time. The Gentile Christians there would prepare meals for Paul and for Peter and for the other Jews and for all the Gentiles that were there, and they would spend time around the dinner table, fellowshipping and having a good time. Until one day, there were some men, men who came from, the Bible tells us, came from James. And Paul soon realized that these men were of the circumcision party. They were the men who believed that it was necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. They, they were the ones that felt like the Jews were superior to the Gentiles and that if fellowshipping and eating together was to go on, that Jews should be with Jews and Gentiles should be with Gentiles, that there should be no mixing together. Soon after, these, these uh, Jews from the circumcision party arrived, Peter began acting funny. He, he no longer wanted to eat with the, the Gentile Christians and, and, and fellowship with them. We, we, we know what Peter was doing. We, we all know what was happening. Peter did not want the, these, these Judaizers, these, Christ, these Jews from the circumcision party, to know that he was associating with the Gentiles. He, he was acting sometimey, as we would say. Or, or he was acting brand new, right? I, back in my day, we, we would say that he was fronting, right? My, uh, my, my daughter, Elise, this past year was her, her first year at kindergarten. And uh, there were a couple of times where we would drop Elise off to school. I would drop her off to school with Aiden, and, and we, would, we would get to the door, and Elise would, would quickly rush off. And she, she wouldn't turn back to say goodbye, but she, she was almost looking as if she didn't want to be with me. And I, I mean, I knew that one day in her teenage years, this would come. But I didn't think it would come so soon. So one day at the dinner table, I'm talking with Elise, and I said, Elise, I noticed that when I drop you off to school, you, you tend to rush off. You don't, you don't want to say goodbye to daddy or give him a kiss. I see all the other kids kissing their dads. What's, what's wrong, Elise? She says, well, dad. See, the thing is, you're bald-headed. <laughs> 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 
man, if my friends see that my dad is bald-headed, I don't know what they would think about me. Obviously, she didn't want to be associated with bald-headed people. So we, we, know, we know what Peter is doing. It, it's, the plot, it's the plot line. It's the plot line of every teenage movie, right, where the, the, the not-so-popular kid starts hanging out with someone and, and who is somewhat popular. And when the, when the popular crowd comes around, they get all sometimey and, and don't know the, the person that they were hanging out with. This is what Peter is doing. This is how he is behaving when these Jews from the circumcision party come around. He began gravitating and hanging out more with the men who had come from James. But, but here's the thing. Peter has great influence. Remember, he's the lead apostle. He is seen as, as the first among many. And so, many of the other Jewish brothers who were with them begin to follow Peter's lead. And they also pull away from the Gentiles. Paul sees this behavior and he knows that he has to confront it. And, and here is where the confrontation happens. And, and what we will notice about this confrontation, we will notice two things. We will notice that it is personal and it is public. Look at verse 11. But, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas being Peter, uh, I opposed him to his face. Paul goes to Peter and he deals with Peter directly. He, he, does, not, he does not pull Barnabas aside and, 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 and speak behind Peter's back. He doesn't pull Barnabas aside and say, can you believe what Peter is doing? Somebody needs to go talk to that brother. He's, he's messing up. He's leading these people astray. No, Paul goes to Peter directly, personally. There's no gossip here. Paul's not going to let this issue fester behind his back, but he wants to address this situation right now. He wants to address Peter because he knows that Peter knows better. Peter knows better. Peter was at the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts chapter 15, where it was declared that the Gentiles no longer needed to did not need to follow the Jewish laws and traditions in order to be saved. And, and while they are having this discussion in Acts chapter 15 and making this decision, where do you think they got this idea from? Well, they got it from Peter because of the vision that Peter had in Acts chapter 10. You remember, it was there that Peter was hungry and was then given a vision from the Lord. The vision consisted of a sheet coming down from heaven, and on those sheets were all of various types of animals, reptiles, all types of animals were on this sheet. 
And Jews, according to the Levitical law, were not supposed to eat of these things, right? Because they were considered unclean animals. They were not supposed to eat these things. But Peter has this vision, and then a voice comes to him from heaven. It says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once. Peter gets this vision of, of, of these animals, and he is told to rise up and to eat. He is then led to Cornelius' house. The Cornelius is a Gentile. And Cornelius, when he sees Peter come into his house, is amazed that this Jew would be in his house because he knows that this is unlawful, that he would be in his house and let alone eat with him. The Gentiles were considered unclean. So Cornelius is amazed. And, 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 and when he asks Peter about this, why is he here? This is what Peter says. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter then goes on, because of this vision that he had from the Lord, to declare that the gospel not only came to the Jews, but it came to the Gentiles as well. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on these Gentiles, and they begin to speak in tongues, giving evidence that they have received Christ. That vision Peter was there. Peter knows that the Gentiles are accepted in the beloved. These are the words. These are the words from Peter. Peter saw this. He experienced the work of the gospel among the Gentiles. And this same Peter is now seeking to pull away from these Gentile Christians. Because he is concerned about what these Judaizers think of him. Certainly, certainly Peter knew better. He, he had walked with Jesus. He was there at the house of the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 7, whom Jesus declared as having great faith, demonstrating that his gospel, that he did not just come for the Jews alone, but he came for the Gentiles as Well, oh, Paul went to Peter personally. He he went to him, his face personally. He didn't send an email. He didn't send somebody else to do the work. Peter went there himself. He confronted Peter personally, but he also confronted Peter publicly. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, be for them all. Paul does not rebuke Peter privately. He deals with 
the matter publicly. Why? Why Why not just pull Peter aside quietly and say, Peter, do you realize what you're doing? Do you see what your actions are leading to? Paul doesn't do that. Why? Why doesn't he, why, why doesn't he, he just pull him aside public, privately? This is not, it's not what he does. Paul said that I confronted Peter in front of everybody, right? Everybody. It wasn't just, it just wasn't some people. It was everybody. He said, I opposed him publicly. Why does he do it publicly? Because Peter's sin was public. Don't miss that. Peter's sin was public. One commentator says it this way. For even though Peter was the leader, he was not the only sinner. He then says, quoting Calvin, this example instructs us that those who have sinned publicly must be publicly chastised as far as the church is concerned. Peter, Peter's sin needed to be dealt with publicly because his actions had already begun to influence those around him. The Bible says that even Barnabas, even Barnabas who was with Paul, began to be led astray. Of course, of course this would happen because Peter was the one that everybody looked up to. He was the leader. If Peter is, is, is moving away from the Gentiles, well then it seems that everybody else would follow suit, that that is what they are supposed to do. Incidentally, incidentally, Paul here is once again affirming his apostleship and his authority. By the actions, by, by confronting Peter, this lead apostle, this man who walked with Jesus. Paul, Paul knows about Peter's status. But he is not afraid to confront him. Because he knows that Peter is wrong. He's not going to go along just to go along like everyone else. Paul wants to confront this issue because he knows Peter is wrong. This is instructive. This is instructive for us, brothers and sisters, when it comes to the public nature of rebuke. You know, people, people are often chastised or, 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 or talked about negatively for critiquing books or for calling out false teachers publicly. Shai Lin, who is a Christian hip-hop artist, recently wrote a song entitled False Teachers. And in that song, he, he calls names. He calls out names that people would recognize, and, and he, he begins to criticize these prominent pastors and teachers for preaching a different gospel. You know, when that song came out in the blogosphere and, 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 and on the internet, Shailin took a little bit of heat. He took a little bit of flack because people thought that he should have gone to these individuals personally. 
perhaps wrote them an email or, or offered to, to take them out to lunch and confront them privately. No, brothers and sisters, no. These men and women proclaim a message that is very, very public. It's all over the, the TV. They are all over the Internet, and they are on bookshelves. If they are preaching a different gospel publicly, it needs to be dealt with publicly. Why? Because they are not the only sinners. There are many preaching these false gospels, and they need to be addressed publicly. There are many that are led astray and follow after them. Some of us can testify in this room to be being led astray by these false teachers. Brothers and sisters, they need to be addressed publicly because their message is public. Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5 and 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they, that the rest may stand in fear. Paul knows that this matter needed to be addressed publicly for the sake of the church, for the sake of the church so that others would not be led astray. Paul confronts Peter personally, confronts him publicly. But we also want to take a look at the reason for this confrontation. We've, we've looked at the confrontation. We want to take a look at the reason for it. Look at verse 14 again. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This verse here is the heart of the text. That is the reason for Paul's disgust. It is the reason he feels like he needs to confront Peter, both, both personally and publicly, and he, and he needs to rebuke him. His conduct is not in step with, it's not in line with, it's not according to the truth of the gospel. Get this. Paul is not confronting Peter over some petty issues. He's not confronting him because he stepped on his toe or because he didn't say hi when he walked by. He's not confronting him because Peter may have said that, that Paul couldn't preach something about he, he was difficult to understand. He's not, he's, not, he's not confronting him over those petty, small issues. And get this, Paul isn't even so much concerned about the feelings of the Gentiles. For the Gentiles would have been offended, perhaps hurt, perhaps angry that Peter was now separating himself from them. Oh, that's, 
That's of that's Paul's concern. He is concerned about that. But that is not the, the main motivation for this confrontation. The reason Paul is confronting Peter is because this is a gospel issue. There, Peter's life was not in line with the gospel. Confronts Peter because this was a gospel issue. Oh, oh, if someone offends you, you should go to them. You should, you should go to them. But, but the question you need to ask is, is this a gospel issue? Is this a gospel issue? These are the issues that we are to vehemently oppose. Not petty issues, but gospel issues we are to vehemently oppose. Paul says that I oppose them because they were not in line with the truth of the gospel. How you live your life is tied to what you believe about the gospel. Because you do understand that your orthodoxy leads to your orthopraxy. What your doctrine says will often dictate how you live your life. Paul said, Peter, your life your life should be reflecting the truth of the gospel you say you believe. The one that we just grasped arms on earlier, saying that we agreed upon. But Peter, you are drifting. You are drifting from that line. This is heavy. This is heavy, brothers and sisters. This should, be, this should be a reminder to us of how quickly that one can drift from the truth of the gospel. Here is the lead apostle. The lead apostle, one who walked with Jesus, falling prey to the subtle but deadly consequences of a works-based gospel. Don't think. Don't think for a moment that this could not happen to you. Don't start lifting up your nose at Peter and saying, Peter, how could you? Thinking that you would never do such a thing. Brothers and sisters, every, every single morning we wake up, every morning we wake up, Crouching at our door is the temptation to trust in our works. Every morning, there is the temptation to add a yoke of slavery, not only to ourselves, but we add that yoke of slavery to our children. We add it to our spouses. We add it to our children. Crouching at our door every moment, there is a temptation to add to the work of Christ. And we are slowly drifting from the truth of the gospel. Find our lives reflecting lives of legalism and slavery rather than grace and freedom that comes 
in Jesus Christ. Oh, that is why it's so important to understand the truth of the gospel. In order to live our lives in light of this truth, we need to know what the gospel is. We need to know what truths it declares. Oh, the gospel declares to us the truth about God. It declares to us the truth that God is holy, that he is perfect, that he is set apart. It is God's message, his good news, and the truth about the messenger of that good news is that he is holy. We see this in Exodus chapter 3 at the, at the burning bush. As Moses sees this bush burning off in the distance, but he notices that it is not being consumed. And, and Moses hears his name called from the bush, and he begins to walk to it. And the voice of the Lord comes to Moses. Do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Moses at that moment knew that God was indeed other than him, that he was holy and perfect, and God was not like him. He was different. And all throughout Scripture, God declares himself as holy, and he makes it abundantly clear that no one no one is entering into his presence unless they themselves are holy. That is the truth that the gospel declares to us. But it also declares to us the truth about man. Man at one point walked with this holy and good God, was in right relationship with him. Soon, as, a, as an act of rebellion, we disobeyed this holy and good God and began to live contrary, contrary to his word. This rebellion, this sin separated us. It, it separated and put this chasm between us and God where we were once fellowshipping with him. We were now separated from him, deserving of his righteous Wrath, the judgment that he proclaimed against sin. Psalmist David put it this way in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The truth of the gospel declares that God is holy and that man is sinful and deserving of his wrath. But the gospel also reveals to us a truth about Jesus. It reveals to us a truth about Jesus that he was the promised one of Israel who was going to come and was going to come and rescue his people from slavery and death. The, the truth that the gospel proclaims and reveals is that Jesus was perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died upon the cross, taking the penalty for his children. 
Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, on oh, such a rich verse, oh, it's one that we should commit to memory. It is one that we should always reflect on. It is one that if you contemplate deeply enough, it will cause tears to fall from your eyes. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that not a glorious truth, brothers and sisters? That is the truth that the gospel declares. It declares over and over and over again it is about Jesus. He is the good news that the gospel proclaims. That he stood. That he stood in the place of undeserving, rebellious people so that we might be reconciled to God, made holy, made holy so that we can stand in his presence. Declares to us the truth about God, about man, about Jesus, but it also declares to us the truth about faith. The gospel says, it is not my works, it is not my Righteousness that allows me to receive this good news, but it is a gift of God. It is his grace and mercy to me. It is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In a nutshell... Here is what the gospel declares. Here is the truth of the gospel. The gospel declares that you can give up trying and start trusting. It declares that you can give up working and start resting. Resting in the finished work of Jesus, both in his life and in his death. Trusting and resting in Jesus. That is the gospel truth that informs the way we live. These are the truths that Paul was declaring to Peter, you are not living in line with. His actions failed to understand the work of Christ. That is where we often go wrong when it comes to to walking according to the gospel truth. Listen, adding to the gospel, adding to the gospel is saying in essence that when Jesus walked upon this earth, he wasn't fully obedient. He, he missed fulfill, fulfilling all of the law. To add to it, we, we are saying that he wasn't perfect in his life. He missed something. He missed out on something. We may not say that, but that is what is being communicated. Listen, 
Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Listen, if when you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, if at that point we receive Christ's righteousness, then to make it a requirement to follow the law for our righteousness means that we are saying that Christ's life was null and void. He didn't dot every I across every T. That is what we're saying. Brothers and sisters, Peter and the circumcision party were out of line. What they knew to be true about the gospel contradicted with the actions they were living. They were saying, they were saying that to eat with the Gentiles would be to fulfill, would be to, to, to be disobedient to the law of God. And that they were adding this yoke of slavery to the Gentile believers because the Gentile believers would have thought that they were doing something wrong by what they were eating. When God had declared, I have declared what was unclean, clean. Oh, brothers and sisters, the truth of the gospel oozes grace. It oozes grace. It, it oozes love. It, it oozes freedom. Christ tore down the walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Christ fulfilled all of the law. We are accepted in Christ, and therefore, and therefore we should love one another, accept one another, because the, the gospel declares that at the foot of the cross, we are all sinners. That my good works and bad works, both my good works and bad works condemn me. That nothing, nothing apart from Christ and his righteousness makes me whole, makes me accepted in the family of God. It is not my Jewishness. It is not my Gentileness. It is my Christness that makes me acceptable in his sight. Titus 3, verse 3 and through 7 says this. For we were once ourselves foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the truth the gospel declares, brothers and sisters. And we are to live in light of it. Paul says, Peter, your actions, your actions are not making sense. You can't one day eat with the Gentiles and then the next day force them to follow Jewish laws in order to be saved. Peter, it, it makes no sense. This is not about preferences, Peter. This is not about people pleasing, Peter. You're acting like a hypocrite. This is about the grace of God. The truth of the gospel is at stake by your actions. This should be a reminder that we cannot, that we cannot allow our preferences and our man-made traditions to dictate whether or not someone is saved. Just because you like a certain style of music doesn't mean that you should have stopped associating with people that don't like that style of music. Your style of music is not gospel. Oh, but it's not just with music. It's with clothes too. Ties versus no ties. Dresses versus pants. Oh, we take it into education as well. Homeschool versus public school versus private school. It goes on. Baptism. Children or just believers? Premillennialists, postmillennialists, or amillennialists? It goes on and on. The list goes on and on. We could have great debates, good, healthy discussion on those things. But if we start making them gospel issues, we are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, for it is Jesus only that saves. And when people start adding to him, then it's time. Then it's time to confront. It's time to have a gospel confrontation with that individual. Because, brothers and sisters, it is Jesus and Jesus only. Oh, it's so subtle. You see how quickly, you see how quickly Peter diverged from that line, how quickly he left the, the truth of the gospel as you think about this text, think about how good God is to Peter. Think about how, how gracious God is to Peter. Here is Peter straying away from the truth of the gospel. And who does God send to Peter? God sends Paul to Peter. In other words, Brothers and sisters, this is a confrontation of love. God is being loving to 
Peter and sending him a reminder, a reminder about what the truth of the gospel is. That as Peter is seeking to stray away, here is Paul to remind him to come back to him and say, no, no, Peter, it's not about your works. It's not about trusting in traditions. It's about trusting in Jesus. Get back to toeing the line, Peter. This is, this is God's grace to Peter. You know, we, we are a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people. And so, do you realize what happens every Sunday? Every Sunday there is a gospel confrontation. There is a gospel confrontation every single Sunday. And you know what? We're so forgetful. We need to have a gospel confrontation every single day. Because the temptation is to trust in our works. And we need to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel and be reminded that it is Jesus only. Don't trust in your works. It's Jesus only. We need to be fellowshipping with one another. And when we are fellowshipping with one another, sharing the gospel with one another. Because having these gospel confrontations all the time, because we are prone to trust in our works. We do it all the time. And we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. That my salvation, that my righteousness, that my standing before a holy and a righteous God is not my works. It's not how many times I had quiet time this week. It's not whether or not I, I yelled or didn't yell at my kids. It's not whether or not I was good to my spouse. It's not whether or not I shared the gospel this week. It is, I, am I resting and trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Oh, brothers and sisters, we got to have that gospel confrontation all the time. And when it comes, see it as God's love and mercy to you. Oh, I bet Peter, I know Peter can look back on this time and remember when his Savior said to him, Peter, Satan, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. And when, and when you fall, Peter, Take heart, for you will turn back to me. And when you turn, feed my sheep. Oh, I can imagine Peter looking back on this and saying, God is good to me. Here I was, straying from the truth of the gospel, and God sent Paul to me to turn me once again to the goodness and the mercy of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, turn to it. Turn to it this day. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ alone. Walk out of here resting in Christ alone. No matter what you did this week, no matter what you did last night, you leave here saying, I don't, I'm not trusting in my righteousness. I'm not trusting in my works, but I'm trusting in Christ and in Christ alone.